Okay, uh, we're going to open the Word now. Uh, if you have a Bible, turn to Colossians chapter 3. We're just going to read three verses. We're going to read verses 12 through 14 of Colossians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. Uh, we have the words printed in the bulletin as well. And just while you're looking that up, I'll remind you once again that we have... Uh, we have an opportunity at the end of the sermon, hopefully. I've worked really hard at being concise today and not running on forever and ever uh, to answer some questions that you might have. We're talking about forgiveness, okay? And some of the things I might say might sound crazy to you and you might want to hear more on that. So uh, if you have questions, write them down. You can follow the sermon outline on the back of the bulletin. And uh, if you want to ask them at the end of the sermon but you don't want to raise your hand, you can text that question to me. I have my phone here. Uh, the number is right there in the bulletin. So let's uh, read our text for this morning. This is Colossians chapter 3, beginning at verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. This is God's Word. So we are uh, currently making our way uh, through a, a series we've been doing called Gospel-Centered Living. And just for those who are visiting, let me uh, catch you up on what we're, what we're trying to do. The Gospel, hmm, the Gospel, the Christian life, being a Christian is not just about getting your, your sort of get-out-of-free-jail card, right? I become a Christian, that means God has forgiven my sins because Jesus lived for me and died for me, and therefore now I don't have to go to hell when I die, even though that is true, and that is not to be minimized, and I have preached on the importance of that in the past, so, so that's not a small thing. That's true, that's not to be minimized, that's not everything that needs to be said. The gospel is for here and now. There's a place in uh, uh, the Gospel of John where Jesus says very interestingly, He says, now this is eternal life, that they would know you, the one true God, and your Son whom you've sent. So knowing God is eternal life. That's a, that's a, a present experience. Knowing God means knowing something about Him now. That means uh, having a relationship with Him now. And what we've been doing is, is we've been looking at crucial aspects of the gospel that are supposed to have an effect on your life in the here and now. So that being a Christian actually means something. It does something to you and in you. So that when people who aren't Christians look at you, they say, hmm, that's kind of a, that person's, there's something a little different about them. Maybe they'll use the word off. Maybe they'll use the word weird. I don't know what word they'll use, but hopefully they'll use a word that makes them, basically that summarizes the idea that there is a, a differentness to you because of this faith you have in Jesus Christ. And so we've talked about the role of repentance. We've talked about the role of the, the law of God in the life of, Christ, of a Christian. We've talked about the holiness of God and the importance of understanding it and understanding your sin. And we talked about idols last week. And apparently a lot of you, from what I heard about the engage groups anyway, a lot of you were like, really, that one really hit you. 
Everybody's an idolater and you're all walking around going, hokey doodle, I didn't know I had so many idols in my life. Good stuff, that's great. Uh, We'll have to keep going on that, right? Sometime. But today, we're going to talk about one more crucial aspect uh, of a Christian's life and it's the place of forgiveness in the life of a Christian. The place of forgiveness. And I don't mean... God's forgiveness of your sin, because we talked about that when we, when we looked at repentance. What I mean is the, the role that forgiveness plays in your life as you are relating to other people, that you need to forgive them. You need to be a forgiving person. And, and just so you know, this is another one of these non-negotiables. How can I put this? If I can't put this any better than Jesus himself put it in Matthew chapter 5. He's giving the Lord's prayer. And at the end of the Lord's Prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, listen to what Jesus says. He says, if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Whoa. If you're not forgiving, your Father will not forgive you. Now, what does he mean by that? Does that, it almost sounds like kind of a works-based righteousness, right? Like, I, if I'm a forgiving person, then God, therefore, will be forgiving to me, and, then, and that's a good thing, and, and it makes it sound like you have to do something in order to be saved, but that's not what Jesus is getting at. What he's saying is this. He's saying, if you have known God's forgiveness, you will be a forgiving person. It has to happen. It is the natural outflow of having experienced God's forgiveness that you will also be a forgiving person. The thing is, is just like repentance, when we talked about it a couple weeks ago, the fact is, is that forgiveness is, is hard for people. It's hard. Okay, small stuff, yeah, you know, like your neighbor broke your lawnmower or something and you know, they say, oh, sorry, and you say, I forgive you. You know, you can let that fly. That's not such a big deal. But big stuff, like when you've been deeply hurt, deeply hurt, people have a very, very, very hard time forgiving. See, they carry not just the scars of the hurt, that's part of it, but they carry more than scars. They, they carry bitterness. They carry, they carry anger. They carry resentment. St. Augustine, who I've quoted to you before, he's a brilliant guy from the 4th century. He says this, he says, Resentment is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. It, It ruins you. But the reason you're holding on to it is because you want it to ruin someone else. And listen... This is not just a problem for the world. Don't go thinking that because you're in church and you're among Christian people and you're a Christian, that forgiveness is something that just kind of flows in your world and is easy to do for you. Oh no, not at all. Even though it's true that a Christian ought to be quick to repent and quick to forgive, sadly, many Christians are not. Ruth Graham, you know who Ruth Graham is? Daughter of Billy Graham, okay? If anybody was raised... In a godly home, it had to be her, <laughs> right? I mean, Billy Graham. Billy Graham's daughter. She, her husband, committed adultery on her. And she describes the experience of having been so deeply hurt and deeply offended and deeply betrayed in her autobiography. 
And at one point, listen to what she says. She says, people were telling her, counseling her, you've got to forgive, Ruth, you've got to forgive. And she writes this. This is a, the daughter of perhaps the most famous, influential, and effective preacher in the 20th century. What did forgiveness really mean? That's just what she asked. What did it look like? What was forgiveness? I did not know. Everyone seemed to have a definition but me. Huh, this is Billy Graham's kid. So let's not just assume we get it. Oh, I get forgiveness. Oh, do you? I thought I did. Hmm. Uh, anyhow, I won't, say, I won't go into that. We're going to look at forgiveness today. All right, we're going to study forgiveness today. We're going to look at what true forgiveness looks like. There's a lot of false forgiveness out there, okay? There's a lot of false forgiveness out there. We're going to look at what true forgiveness is. There's a place in, I believe it's Matthew 18 or 19 or 20, somewhere around there. I, I, I think it's 18. It's a parable of the unmerciful servant. It's a story that Jesus tells about a man who owed a king a tremendous amount of money, and the king uh, forgave that man's debt. And then this man went out, after that having happened to him, he, he met a guy who owed him a little bit of money, and he had that guy thrown in jail and wanted his whole family thrown in jail to repay that debt. And Jesus said, you must forgive a man from your heart. That's true forgiveness. That man did not know what true forgiveness was because he didn't forgive from the heart. Well, what does it mean to forgive someone from the heart. We get, we get an indication from our text because in verse 14, it says this. No, sorry, verse 13, it says this. Forgive whatever grievances you have against one another. And then it says, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And what Paul is saying is, is if you want to truly forgive from your heart, he's not saying just like God forgave you, you should forgive. Oh, he did it, therefore you should do it. It's deeper than that. He's saying that there is a divine pattern. Paul is saying that there is a, a pattern to follow. You need to follow the way of forgiveness that God demonstrates in his relationship with us. And so we're going to see three things in our text as we study this together. We're going to see the price of forgiveness, we're going to see the process of forgiveness, and we're going to see the purpose of forgiveness. I'm on a bit of a roll Last week it was three D's, now we've got three P's, feeling like I'm on fire. Three P's of forgiveness, the price, the purpose, nope, missed it, what's the third, what's the second one? Process, and then purpose. Okay, here we go. The three P's of forgiveness, here we go. First of all, the word forgiveness that Paul uses in this text is a, is a very interesting word. It's this word charizomai. It's a Greek word, and, and it's the word that we get our word, or it comes, I should say, this word comes from the word grace. So at the root of charizomai is the word grace. And what does grace mean? Grace means undeserved favor, right? It's when someone does something, does something for you that you do not deserve. That's what grace is. And so forgiveness, therefore, has to be a gift. It cannot be earned. It cannot be deserved. And this is important to remember because I hear people say sometimes, like, I don't, it's not like I hear you guys say this, but I hear this like on the news or, or read it in a newspaper article in a magazine or something like that, so-and-so doesn't deserve forgiveness. 
And Scripture says, a duh. No one deserves forgiveness. The whole point of forgiveness is that it is a gift given to undeserved people. That's, that's why we follow the pattern of God. Think about it. Do you deserve God's forgiveness? If you know anything about the gospel, if you know anything about biblical Christianity, you would obviously answer, of course not, I don't. And so the people who sin against you, they don't deserve forgiveness either. They're not deserving of your forgiveness, whatever that is. We haven't exactly defined it exactly yet, but we do know that, that they don't deserve it either. And you might say, yeah, but you see, we're all sinners, so we all maybe we all deserve forgiveness from one another. That's what Google will tell you. I just, just to... Just to see, do people really think that? I googled, you know, do we deserve forgiveness? And the first, like, ten pages were all articles on how we all deserve forgiveness, how we all ought to receive forgiveness from one another. But the Bible says none of us deserve forgiveness. That's the whole point of the gospel, okay? We receive the gospel by grace. So that's the first thing. Forgiveness is a gift, but that's not everything. Because there's another word that gets used for forgiveness in the New Testament a lot, and it means to let go. It means to release, uh, sorry, release. It means to remit something along that. Essentially, it means to have a debt paid. And so if you hear that, you go, oh yeah, the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And in that parable of the unmerciful servant, what does the king do? He forgives the debt that this man owed against him. And so if you combine grace and the remittance or repayment of debts, you get this amazing idea that forgiveness is, yes, a free gift that is offered to another person, but it's costly at the same time. You see that? It's costly at the same time. The thing is, though, it doesn't cost the person. See, when someone sins against you, and you probably can feel this, right? You, you feel like, like a debt has been incurred. And now that person owes you. And if you're like me, and you're, you're a hard-hearted person at times, the reason you're not quick to forgive is because when that imbalance happens, when they do something against you and boom, you're up here and they're down there, you kind of like it. It feels good. It feels good to be the righteous one who has been wronged by the unrighteous one. You know? Husbands and wives know this for sure because it happens all the time, right? When sinner A marries sinner B, they get married, and next thing you know, sinner A is sitting against sinner B, and sinner B is sitting against sinner A. It's going back and forth all the time. That's just the nature of marriage. There's a good plug for getting married, isn't it? But, but the problem is, is that, that you, feel, you feel this sense of debt, and sometimes the danger is, of course, that you want to hold on to that debt. But someone's got to pay it. If there's forgiveness to happen, someone's got to pay the debt. If, somebody, if one of my kids takes a ball and breaks my window, I can forgive them what they have done, but the window is still broken. And either they're going to pay for that broken window or I'm going to pay for that broken window. The point is, is that someone's got to pay. And in forgiveness, what happens is you pay. To forgive means to make payments rather than to take payments. 
I'll say that again. Forgiveness means to make payments rather than to take payments. See, when someone sins against you, what you want to do, when someone hurts you, I say sins against you, but that's, that's Christianese. When someone wrongs you, when someone betrays you, when someone hurts you deeply, your desire is, is to take payments. Your natural desire, what do you do? So you dwell on the hurt. You think, I can't believe they did this. Like, how could they do this to me? I'm just so shocked and disappointed in them. They're so awful. Your, your tendency is to, to, if possible, remind them of what they have done and shoulder them with the guilt of what they have done. Your desire might be to actually inflict a little bit of pain upon them. Maybe you, maybe you gossip a, a, about them. Maybe you slander them in, in small ways. Maybe you think about, about taking revenge. And the reason that all this is happening is, is because you think you're getting the debt paid. You think they're paying you back. What do you think? What do, you, what do we say? Uh, I don't get mad. I get even, Right? Things are like this, we got to put them like this. We say we want to even the score. We want to get things right again. And sometimes we don't say or do anything against the other person. Sometimes what we do is we just practice voodoo. What do I mean by that? You, in your head, you imagine and hope for their comeuppance. Right? I just hope somebody puts that guy in his place. That would be so good. And you almost, because you're a Christian, you don't pray for it because you know that would be going too far. So you just, in a vague kind of way, hope for it. That this person goes down and receives what they deserve so that the balances get, get returned to where they ought to be. Well, to forgive means that you don't take payments, but instead you make payments. And now we're bridging to point number two. What's this process of forgiveness? Well, Paul says, you forgive as the Lord forgave you. Okay, let's think about it. How did the Lord forgive us? Well, he forgave us through the gospel. Remember, when you sinned against God, when you rebelled against God, when you hurt God, when you, when you spit in his face as the, author, the rightful authority of your life, when you did all those things, a debt was incurred, and so that debt had to, be, had to be repaid. And the gospel is this. What's the gospel? You'll hear it around here all the time, right? The gospel is Jesus lived the life that I should have lived and died the death that I should have died. God paid that debt for you on your behalf in Jesus Christ. And I could, I could quote a couple passages. I could list a whole bunch of passages. But trust me, this is what the Bible teaches from beginning to end. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be, become the righteousness of God. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 1 John 4, verse 10. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You can also look up John 3.16. Everybody knows John 3.16, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that who would ever believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. There's 1 Timothy 2, verse 6. There's Matthew 20, verse 28, which says, um, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Romans 4, verse 25. Read the entire book of Galatians. It's everywhere. 
See, the price, friends, of forgiveness is very, very high because you see, when, when you commit to forgiving, you commit to paying. When God committed to forgive us our sin, He had to commit to pay Himself, not take payment from us, but make payment for us. Okay, well, what does that look like? And I'm going to talk about three promises that you make, three promises that you make, but very quickly before I do that, let me just say this. Forgiveness is first and foremost a commitment. You got to understand this. You will be sunk if you do not understand this about forgiveness. Forgiveness is first and foremost a commitment you make, not an emotion that you feel. You have to make a conscious decision. You have to tell yourself, I will not take payments. Do you notice that in the very beginning of this passage that we read, Paul says this, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. You and I are God's chosen people, meaning that God decided, God chose us. That's us. He chose to forgive us. He, he, chose, he could, chose to make this commitment to make us his children. And when he did that, when he made that decision, he had to agree to pay the debt because the debt had to be paid. Is God just if he just says, eh, whatever, you know, you sin, no big deal, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, everybody does it. That's not a just God. Is that what you want your judges to do when they stand, on, uh, 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 stand in judgment over lawbreakers in the province of Ontario? Do you want them to look at these people who commit murder and who commit fraud and who commit uh, all kinds of, of wicked felonies? Do you want the judge to stand there and say, well, you know, everybody does it. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. You know, to err is human, to forgive is divine. I'm feeling godlike today. You're forgiven. No. If anything... People are always in an uproar that there's not enough justice in this world. And so someone had to make the payment. And God chose and he committed to making the payment for us. Now listen, I hear people say, they say stuff like, I can't forgive, I'm just too angry. And what that means is, is they've decided to let emotions rule the commitment rather than commitment drive the emotions. Do you know what the answer to, I can't forgive, I'm too angry is? You're too angry because you won't forgive. Your feelings need to follow your resolve. Not vice versa. Do you think that when Jesus was dying on the cross and he was being spit upon and mocked at and, and, and the wrath of God was being poured out on him by all these people who are walking by saying, look at him, he said he was the son of God and he's getting nailed to a cross. He's a complete and utter loser. Do you think he was hanging there thinking to himself, I love these people. They're so awesome. I have so much affection for them right now. But he said, I will do it anyway. So it's a commitment first. Do not forget that. Because that's you will be sunk if you don't re remember that. You know why? Because you've got to make three promises. And these three promises are impossible without commitment. What's the first promise? The first promise is you have to promise not to dwell on the offense to yourself. This is the first way we take payments. The way you make payments is you promise, but you won't dwell on it yourself. Listen, we brood. 
We lick our wounds. We replay it over and over and over again in our heads. Your mind wants to go there and you have to tell yourself, no, don't go there. I'm going to forgive and forget. And you say, but listen, that is so cheap and trite. You tell me to forgive and forget. Okay, I can forget when my husband forgets to, you know, put the toilet seat down. You can forget that. But what if you've been abused? What if you've been beaten? What, how do you forget that? And you've got to understand, we're forgiving, we're forgiving as the Lord forgave us. What does it mean for God to forgive and forget? God is God. He is omniscient. He can't forget. He can't go, oh, I like Paul. Paul did that? I forgot. That's not how God works. God actively chooses not to act towards me in accordance with the sins I have committed against him. That's what it means for God to forget. And that's what it means for you to forget. It doesn't mean that you don't remember that this ever happened. It means that you do not treat another person based upon those offenses that they have committed against you. You don't replay it over and over in your mind. That's the poison that Augustine was talking about. It becomes... The resentment, the bitterness, where do you think it comes from? It's not, these things grow. Yeah. Hebrews talks about a root of bitterness. I won't tell you about all what it means, the root of bitterness. I'll just say it's interesting that Hebrews uses the language of a root of bitterness. That's something that gets, get, gets planted and it grows from the bottom up. You can kill that thing by not feeding that thing. Don't bring it up to yourself. Second one is, is you don't bring it up to them. You don't use it against them. You don't remind them of it over and over again. This is, listen, this is not to pretend it never happened. Don't confuse punishment with consequences. When you forgive, you commit to not punishing, but you're not committing to not having consequences. Everybody who's been a parent and who has children that lie to them, they understand the, the difference between this, right? Because a child will lie to you, and then you'll say, I forgive you. But you got to understand, what's happened here is a trust, a level of trust in our relationship has been broken. It's been, it's been cracked. It's been whatever. It's been fractured. And therefore, the consequences of that are that I cannot trust you the way I trusted you before. And that needs to be rebuilt. You can't just go back necessarily to the spot we were at. We have to return to that spot by the slow process of rebuilding trust. That's a consequence. That's not punishment. Punishment would be constantly reminding. Punishment would be uh, finding as many negative consequences as you can to exact payment and using that for the purpose of making yourself feel better. So you don't bring it up to them. And then the third thing, the third promise is you promise not to bring it up to others. Uh, one of the things we do is we, we run other people down when they have hurt us deeply. And, you know, you can do that very openly and blatantly, and, and I've experienced that and seen that happen, but it can also be done very subtly. And people are pretty sophisticated, so they tend to be subtle about it. So they, so they gossip about others under the guise of warning them or helping them. Right? So, yeah, you know, uh, I'm just telling you this about Bob because, well, you know, I don't want such and such to happen to you. You know, he's, he's going through some stuff, and so you just need to be aware of that in order that you would be uh, protected from Bob. And here's the thing. 
gossip in the Bible is not saying a falsehood against another person necessarily. It's included, of course, but it's not the only thing gossip is. Gossip is, in the Bible, it's putting another person in a negative light, having a negative report uh, against a person for the purpose of, of uh, sullying their reputation among others. And if you do that, then you're taking payments again. You're not, you're not making payments. Now listen, when you make these three promises, when you've been hurt deeply by someone, and you make these three promises when you commit to forgiving them, you better watch out. The first chance you get to run them down and you stop yourself and you say, no, I won't do that, and you don't give any indication, because that's another thing we do, is, is we, we, we start and then we catch ourselves, and the person that we're with goes, hmm, you're about to say something very juicy and interesting. And then they held back. I wonder what that's all about. And now you've just created a little bit of doubt in the other person's mind about that person. I look at all these grins, and I know I hit something common. The first time you say, I will not bring it up to myself, I will not bring it up to them, and I will not bring it up to others, it hurts like crazy. It is hard. It's painful. And the reason is, is because you just made a payment clunk. You, or to put it this way, you absorbed the cost yourself rather than making someone pay. This is why Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he said that forgiveness is a form of suffering. Now, who would want to do that? Who wants to go through that? Who wants to go through that suffering? And people will tell you, and this is where we might get a little more controversial, but I'll try to be quick and clear, people may tell you, well, see, you've got to do it for you. You've got to forgive because otherwise you will become a bitter person. You will become a resentful person. You've got to free yourself. The forgiveness is for you. And biblically, that's just not true. That is a result of being a forgiving person. That is a benefit of be being a forgiving purpose person. But the purpose of reconciliation is important. point number three, according to Scripture, sorry, the purpose of forgiveness according to Scripture, is reconciliation. Forgive whatever grievances you have uh, against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in what? In perfect unity. When you are broken apart, when you are, when you are withholding forgiveness, you don't have unity, you have disunity. You have a distance, you have, you have the wedge, you know, the foothold that Paul said you better not give the devil in Ephesians chapter 4. When you forgive, you reconcile, you return to unity. People often say, well, yeah, I've forgiven so-and-so, but I just avoid them. I just stay away. Oh, yeah, yeah, I forgive them, but I, got, I want nothing to do with them anymore. That's not true forgiveness. Imagine if God said that to you. Imagine if God said that about you. I forgive you. Now go away. Listen to one writer, how he puts it. People are mistaken if they think of Christian forgiveness primarily as absolution from guilt. Oh yes, you're no longer guilty. The purpose of forgiveness is the restoration of communion, the reconciliation of brokenness. See, forgiveness is ultimately not about you. God's forgiveness, look, God was perfectly fine without us and without forgiving us. He didn't have to forgive us. 
He was perfectly fine without us. Jesus didn't have to die for us. He wanted to die for us. He didn't have to make the payment himself. He chose to make the payment himself. He chose to absorb it himself. Why did he do that? To reconcile us to himself. For our sake, to return us to him. And when you are forgiving, you're doing it for the sake of the offender in the sense that it's not about you. It's about reconciling them to you. And this, by the way, is why you are not obligated, I believe, according to the Bible, you are not obligated to forgive someone who does not repent. You are called to love them. Scripture says you are called to love all people, even love your enemies. But forgiveness is a gift that you grant to a person who has repented. And I know some of you are thinking about, well, what about when Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He wasn't commanding his father to do that. He was appealing. He was saying, have a forgiving posture. Be ready to forgive them. But forgiveness is something that we grant to those who repent. That's the catalyst of experiencing forgiveness. We are, of course, called to love, love, love in all circumstances, even our worst enemies. And so there's a force fourth promise that you got to make. I didn't include it in your outline, but it, it's, it's a consequence of all this. You commit to not letting this thing, whatever it is, stand in the way of your relationship with this person. You will work toward restoration. Now, that does not mean that that happens overnight. Think, if you break a vase, okay, you break a vase and it's all in pieces on the floor. Restoration means working toward putting it back together. And there's two implications of that that you've got to remember that are applicable here. And one is this. First of all, it takes time. You don't just go grab all the pieces and ta-da. It's like putting together the worst jigsaw puzzle in the history of the world. It takes time. It may not, things may not fit the first time. You might have to take something out and put something else back in. That's the first implication. This takes time and it's hard and it's arduous. And I am not expecting those of you who have been hurt deeply. Some of you maybe have been hurt so deeply. I don't know your histories. But deep down inside, stuff has happened to you. And you're listening to this and you're thinking, you're a crackpot, preacher man. You don't know what I have been through. How dare you say that I should actually try to restore anything to them? Repentance or not. Repentance be damned. I don't care if they're sorry. How could I ever put that together? And the, the call is not that tomorrow you're sitting in, the, in the, the cafe with them having a wonderful conversation again like nothing ever happened. Rather, your posture is toward working together and it may take a lot of time and it may be very arduous and painful to put that vase back together. That's the first thing. And the second thing is, is you got to realize it may not look exactly the same ever again. And that's just the truth, this side of glory. You break a vase and you glue it back together and it looks vase-ish <laughs> again. But it's not the same vase, is it? And the truth is, is that sometimes on this side of glory, even when we practice all these biblical principles, things don't end up back together the way they were before. And yet Paul says, as far as it depends on you, this is Romans 12, live at peace with everyone. Friends, this is reenacting the gospel. You do this, you are, re you are not just being godly, okay? You are being godlike. 
You are being like God when you behave this way. Listen to what Paul Tripp says. He's on the, the front of your bulletin. You say, this is impossible. I can't do this. God is not asking you to do anything that he didn't do himself first. And he never does. God is not like you and me. God is not like me. I try to get my kids to be, I try to get them all the time to do stuff I never did. I want them to be better than me. God is perfect and holy in every way. He never tries to get us to do anything he has never done before. Paul Tripp says, The shattered relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at the cross provides the basis for our reconciliation. No other relationship ever suffered more than what Father, Son, and Spirit endured when Jesus hung on that cross and cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was willing to be reconciled or be the rejected son so that our families would know reconciliation. Jesus was willing to become the forsaken friend so that we could have loving friendships. Jesus was willing to be the rejected Lord so that we could live in loving submission to one another. Jesus was willing to be the forsaken brother so that we could have godly relationships. Jesus was willing to be the crucified king so that our communities would experience peace. This is ground zero, guys. Look, if the gospel can't do this, what can it do? This is the heart and soul of the matter. If it can't do this, through repentance and forgiveness in us and through us and for the world, what can it do? And it can. It can do remarkable things. Okay, I'll very quickly close with the story of the Amish community. The year is 2006, and a guy by the name of, what's his name again? Charles Roberts IV. He walks into an Amish schoolhouse in Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania. He not tells all the kids to get out and he lines up all the girls and he starts shooting them. These are Amish schoolgirls. He starts shooting them one by one. He's mad at God because his little child died. And he shoots five of these girls dead. And he injures five more. And the America went nuts, un understandably. It's another one of those horrible crimes, right? But here's here's where things are different. This was the Amish community, which is a deeply religious community. I have a ton of differences with them, but here's something that we share at the core of our being, and that is that God died for man in Jesus Christ. And because of that, there is a power in us that is unexplainable from outside the Christian faith. And listen to what, this is what a New York Times secular atheistic Journalist wrote, a Roberts family spokesperson said an Amish neighbor comforted the Roberts family hours after the shooting. Amish community members visited and comfort, comforted Roberts' widow, parents, and parents-in-law. One Amish man held Robert's sobbing father in his arms reportedly for as long as an hour to comfort him. The Amish have also set up a charitable fund for the family of the shooter. About 30 members of the Amish community attended Robert's funeral. And Mary Roberts, the widow of the killer, was one of the few outsiders invited to the funeral of one of the victims. Mary Roberts, so this is the shooter's wife, wrote an open letter to her Amish neighbors thanking them for their forgiveness, grace, and mercy. She wrote, and listen to this, 
Your love for our family has helped to provide the healing we so desperately need. Gifts you've given have touched our hearts in a way no words can describe. Your compassion has reached beyond our family, beyond our community, and is changing our world. And for this, we sincerely thank you. Forgive as, forgive one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Let's pray. Father, make us forgiving people. Enable us to forgive. Help us to forgive. It is so hard. Teach us to be more like Jesus who laid down his life for his friends. Teach us to find power in your forgiveness so that we can be forgiving toward others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.